This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody. Great to have you with us for another broadcast. I don't know what John Roberts is doing. I don't know what side he's on. It's just kind of weird. Sometimes he does horrible things at the Supreme Court and other times he does good things. Now he's done something good in this decision that came down concerning Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. I know if your eyes are glazing over, you're saying, what? What is this all about? It's actually kind of an interesting case. This was a case involving whether or not states can exclude religious schools from tuition grants that support other private schools. A little bit of background on this, and this was from Paul Clement, who was the Solicitor General back in 2004 to 2008. This is an interesting thing because uh, he was one of the lawyers who had filed a friend of the court brief on behalf of a dozen organizations and civil rights leaders supporting the constitutional rights of parents like Kendra Espinoza, who is the lead plaintiff in this case, to direct the education of their children, saying that it is essential to student success and to our nation. This is a little background. Espinoza is a single mom who had been working three jobs to send her daughters to a private religious school. She was precisely who Montana lawmakers had in mind when the state enacted a new scholarship program. But even though the legislature made the scholarships available to everybody, Montana officials told Espinoza she could not use the funds at a religious school, and they cited the state's so-called Blaine Amendment. That's the kicker here. The provision, currently part of 37 state constitutions, originated with Representative James Blaine of Maine, yes, that does rhyme, who in 1875 attempted to pass a federal constitutional amendment that said this, no money raised by taxation in any state for the support of public schools or derived from any public fund, therefore, nor any public lands devoted thereto. There's a lot of this archaic language in this here shall ever be under the control of any religious sect nor shall any money so raised or land so devoted be divided between religious sects or denominations. Now, here's what's interesting about this. As widely documented by sect and sectarian, the amendment and its later incarnations actually meant Catholic, as its target was mid-19th century Catholic immigrants who challenged the era's Protestant-dominated public education system. Its introduction was mainly a result of the prejudice stirred by the aptly named Know-Nothing Movement. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of aptly named. The amendment narrowly failed at the federal level, but it spread in the states and continues to foster present-day animosity toward religion. Modern-day supporters of the Blaine Amendment, I guess we could call them the modern-day know-nothings, including groups like the American Federation of Teachers and the ACLU, argue that Blaine Amendments protect schools from religious indoctrination and public funds from advancing religion. But Espinoza did not seek to advance religion. She sought to advance the education of her daughters and thought religious schools are the best fit. 
Now, as they argued in their brief, Paul Clement and others, not only do parents possess a constitutional right to direct the education of their children, honoring this right leads to better schools and better educational outcomes. Working families in the United States, like Espinosa's, understandably cherish this right. Across the nation, many traditional public schools are not working. Yeah, we noticed that. And the repercussions are posing great danger. The U.S. Department of Justice reports the link between academic failure and delinquency, violence, and crime is welded to reading failure. And they go into some of the background on all of this. So that's really what was at stake, is they, they were saying, in fact, Montana was saying that if we give money to any sort of religious school, then somehow we are getting behind a religion. And yet, if you go into the background on the Blaine Amendment, you find out quickly that that's not even what the sense of it was when you look at the original amendment that this guy wanted to pass. Something else here from National Review, which I think is quite interesting, has to do with the reasoning of the majority opinion here. And it was a 5-4 decision. Is it is it ever not a 5-4 decision? <laughs> this time it was Chief Justice Roberts and the four usually conservative justices, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, each wrote concurring opinions. Justice Ginsburg, Kagan uh, also dissented. Justice Breyer dissented, joined in part by Kagan and Justice Sotomayor. So a little bit of a recap here, and this was Ed Whalen at National Review outlining the reasoning of the Chief Justice's majority opinion, and here is his framing paragraph. It went like this. The Montana legislature established a program to provide tuition assistance to parents who send their children to private schools. The program grants a tax credit to anyone who donates to certain organizations that in turn award scholarships to selected students attending such schools. When petitioners sought to use the scholarship, scholarships, I should say, at a religious school, the Montana Supreme Court struck down the program. So they got rid of the whole thing. The court relied on the no aid provision of the state constitution, which prohibits any aid to a school controlled by a church, a sect or a denomination. The question presented is whether the free exercise clause of the constitution barred that application of the no aid provision. So here in the chief's voice, so to speak, and with very direct borrowing. This is the heart of the majority's analysis via Roberts. This is a summary. Our 2017 decision in Trinity Lutheran v. Comer distilled our free exercise precedents into the unremarkable conclusion that disqualifying otherwise eligible recipients from a public benefit solely because of their religious character imposes a penalty on the free exercise of religion that triggers the most exacting scrutiny. You remember that case? It was about the playground and all the rest and the, the program where they had rubber and you could redo the play the playground and, and they were excluding this Lutheran church school because they said you're a religious entity and that, that went the way of the school, the Lutheran uh, school and the Lutheran church there. Montana's no aid provision bars religious schools from public benefits solely because of the religious character of the schools. And it also bars parents who wish to send their children to a religious school from those same benefits, again, solely because of the religious character of the school. Montana argues that Trinity Lutheran does not govern here because the no aid provision applies not because of the religious character of the recipients, but because of how the funds would be used for religious education. But whether or not that is a meaningful distinction, this case also turns expressly on religious status and not religious use. The Montana Supreme Court applied the no aid provision solely by reference to religious status. That's a key point. 
that the no-aid provision might have the goal or effect of ensuring that government aid does not end up being used for religious purposes is immaterial. Status-based discrimination remains status-based, even if one of its goals or effects is preventing religious organizations from putting aid to religious uses. Also, he made the point that Montana cannot satisfy the strict scrutiny test, which is another important element of this case. So, okay, fine, 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 Justice Roberts. I'll give you a little bit of credit. Now, here's the other side of the coin, because already there are Christians saying, I have a big problem with any Christian school, any Christian ministry, any Christian entity taking government money. Now, that's a separate question, whether or not it is in the best interest of any religious entity to take federal funding. And I'll tell you what, I think as we go along here, it's going to be more and more awkward and more and more problematic. For example, when you see schools in California, perhaps, you know, this is a state totally governed by big gay activists. They're all far leftists. They're all totally on board with whatever the rainbow flag tells them they have to do. This makes things very difficult in a lot of respects for some of these Christian schools or Christian colleges in particular, because if you have students who are coming to your school and they get loans and their federal loans and they have to, you know, it does get mingled like that. And then there becomes a problem when you start talking about discrimination. And with this Bostock decision, it's going to become even worse because now you've had the Supreme Court unilaterally declare that the word sex actually means sexual orientation and gender identity in federal law. This is going to complicate things tremendously. And I'm sure there will be much, much, much more litigation on this, but it's going to make it very difficult when you mingle church and state in that way from the church perspective, it can get awfully awkward. I will say I think that this decision was a good decision for religious liberty. I think it was good when you tell a state you can't discriminate against religious schools simply because they're religious. The question is, is that something that Christian schools want? Mm, Probably so. But whenever we're doing that sort of awkward dance with the state, we always have to be very careful. There's more to come. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. We'll be back. What happens when an abortion-minded woman sees her baby's heartbeat for the first time? Here's how a nurse describes the power of ultrasound. When she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and saw that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her and... She said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in her womb, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Then we were able to share the gospel. Sometimes we were able to give out a Bible if they're open and just minister to her the scientific truth and God's love. I cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. just an incredible tool. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month and there are no contracts or commitments 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. After the Lord Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, you'll remember the devil came to him and tempted him to command the stones to be turned into bread. But do you remember what the Lord said? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now think about that. God's word is even more vital to our lives than food is. And that's why we're really excited to tell you about our new campaign with Bible League International. It is called Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. And we want to get 1,200 Bibles into the hands of Christians who have been praying for years for their own copies of God's Word. But we also want new Christians to be able to have their own copies of the Bible for the very first time. Each Bible only costs $5. Or you can send seven Bibles for $35. Just call 800 yes Word, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We're going to chat a little bit more now about what is going on among believers in Asia with Michael Woolworth, who is Senior Director of Broadcast Media at Bible League International. Michael, welcome. So good to have you with us today. Hey, Janet. Great to hear your voice. Uh, We're doing well here in our Uh, home office, if you will, in Chicago, and hope you are doing well as well. Oh, I'm very blessed, and I'm glad you're here. We are very, very excited, first of all, to be partnering with you guys again. Tell listeners a little bit, if you would, about the situation in Asia and the need for Bibles there. What is the big picture on what's going on in Asia? Well, we're focused on Asia right now for good reason. This is where Christianity is growing fastest in the world, Janet. Number two is uh, Africa. Number three is is, uh, the the region of Latin America. And watchdog groups like Pew Research and Operation World that monitor religious life around the world will tell us that Asia is arguably the most difficult part of the world to live out your religious faith. Now, think right now about China and India, always in the news about what? Jailing pastors, shutting down churches, threatening those who would gather for worship. And so uh, it is incredibly difficult uh, to live out your Christian faith, but not impossible. In fact, as we spend a few weeks together, I want to share some amazing stories of how the gospel is going forth. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church. And I'm going to tell you about some amazing people that are doing this. And Janet, the need is for the Word of God. They are discipled in the faith. They're promised a Bible by Bible League. We'll tell you more about that uh, in a moment. But let me at least say this at this point. At, at Bible League, we estimate that as few as one Christian in 10 has a Bible, either mm-hmm. a full Bible or a New Testament, in many parts of the 11 Asian countries where we serve. Let me mention those, Bangladesh, Vietnam, the Philippines, Nepal, Indonesia, China, Cambodia, India, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. So what does that mean if only one Christian in 10 in many of those parts has a Bible? It means that during the COVID-19 spread and lockdown, about 90% of evangelical Christians in many of these parts 
could not open their own Bible and read for themselves scriptures that mean so much to you and me, like 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him, or uh, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp and a light. And where Jesus says in the Great Commission, I'm with you always. And so we want to do something about it through this campaign that we're calling Fan the Flame. If I can just mention something about that uh, title, you know, Fan the Flame can have a negative, uh, certainly a negative connotation, right, to sort of stir up trouble. But think about if you've got maybe a fire pit in your backyard, the flame is going, the, the, the night is going on, it's dying down a little bit, at least it would appear, but it's fully there. And you're doing everything you can to keep it going. And that's why we're sending these Christians exactly what they're praying for, Janet. And that is the word of God in their own languages. Well, that is wonderful. And and people will note what you just said, that Asia is the area where Christianity is growing fastest in the world. But yet you have this small number of Christians who actually can get the Bible in their own hands. Why is that? What are the factors that are driving the lack of Bibles in Asia? Well, it's corrupt governments. If you, if you know much about India right now, they are, again, criminalizing Christianity. There's, there's anti-conversion books uh, on, uh, on, uh, in, in their laws. They're going to be enforcing those very, very um, heartily uh, in 2021. Think about China. Uh, I was throwing Christian persecution in the news here recently. What did I find? One of the largest evangelical churches in China uh, bulldozed without advance notice. So, uh, you know, this is a tough part of the world to live out your faith, and yet uh, it is a place where the gospel uh, is going forth. And people are coming to faith. Janet, they're hungry. And as they come to faith, what do they do? They bring sort of a caricature of Christianity, falsehoods, misinformation. I know a lot of Muslims that come to faith wonder, how is Jesus, both God and man? How does that work out? And so Bible League, through something called Project Philip, walks them through this, and they're in a really great place to begin their spiritual walk with Christ. And what we do at Bible League is we promise them a Bible at the end in their own language. And that's what your listeners are helping us to make good on today, is that promise to give them exactly what they're praying for. And that's a Bible. That's wonderful. As we mentioned, it's only $5 to send a Bible. We're trying to send 1,200 Bibles to Asia. The number is 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Michael Woolworth with us. Now, let's talk a little bit because I know that you do have a lot of stories about the believers in Asia and can share some of that. One story that I'm familiar with that I know you've told is about a pastor in China named Katsu, I think is how you pronounce it. Tell us a little bit about him and what's going on. Yeah, I want to update you on this because uh, your listeners did some amazing back in March and April. But uh, again, China, what is this? Well, it's a, in a difficult part of the world to live out your faith. The man that I'm talking about is Katsu. He's an evangelical pastor, a little over 50, serves outside of Beijing, China. I want to identify the village where he's at. But Janet, I would guess that he has been beaten and jailed at least 25 times over the course of his ministry, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. He's been very quietly and admirably sharing the gospel over many years with uh, people there. He's been discipling them, leads them in the faith, um, and, and does this uh, with, with great danger uh, in his life. Most recently, they beat him so severely, he could not get up for three days. They let him go, told him to never speak of Jesus again. His wife was relieved to find out he'd not been executed or uh, retained for a long period of time. But about a week later, a knock came on his door. Uh, Janet was in the evening. He was a bit reluctant to open it. But he did, and who did he find? Hio. Who was Hio? One of the interrogators that beat this man severely, and all week long, a question burned in his heart, and it was simply this, why were you at such peace 
when we were beating you. And so I like to say, Katz opened his door, opened his Mandarin Bible, and led this bitter atheist to faith in Christ. And the result of this very story is that literally hundreds have come to Christ there in communist China. Why? They've seen in this pastor a willingness to suffer. They've seen in this new uh, Christian a man who was at one time a bitter atheist, did everything he could to advance, uh, stop the advance of the gospel, and now he is professing the name of Jesus. And Janet, I, lo- I love to share this analogy, too. I've got a Mandarin Bible before us right now. I know it's radio. Your listeners can't see it, but it's a basic black cover. It is a Bible that, uh, that uh, Bible League translated many, many years ago. You open it to reveal the beauty beautiful Mandarin print. But you know, as a non-Mandarin speaker, this Bible means nothing to me. I would guess that's the same for you, Janet. But for the Christians right now that I'm talking about in communist China, they would give anything for what sits before me today. And that's why we're we're getting together and we're doing this kingdom business. Five dollars will send a Bible. How many can you send today? Yeah, it's so important. And I I think you've mentioned before that his house church network really needs God's word in the Mandarin language, right? That's one of the ones that you really want to get over there. You know, my colleague tells me that there are people that will stay after the services and they meet with some irregularity. Why? They're forced to. But they will stay after and write down a few verses. They'll take the three or four Mandarin Bibles in that congregation, and they'll write down a few verses simply to have something to take into their week. That's how desperate they are. But, you know, Janet, we can solve this $5 a Bible. We we know we can't do this for every Christian in in China. And, uh, Janet, there's millions there. I know that we don't often hear that in the news. But I can tell you, we estimate easily millions and millions of Christians And can we do this for 1,200 Christians right now in Asia? Again, they're not asking us to drill a well. They're not asking for medicine, not asking for food. They're asking for the Word of God. Yeah, the most important thing. What does it mean when you get Bibles into the hands of these Christians who have been praying sometimes for years to get one? What is their general reaction when you make that transaction? Here's your Bible for the first time. Well, let me just think about another region of the world where I was at in Africa, the week of Super Bowl 2018. Can't even remember who played that year, but I can tell you, I will never forget this experience. I gave a Bible to the village witch doctor, a woman by the name of Mabel, 60 years of age. Her life had been all about shamanism, voodoo, black magic, all those things. When I gave that Bible, knowing that she had left all of that to follow Jesus, the hundreds in the audience literally shouted, they danced as she held that Bible above her head 10 times and said, what, I'm a new creation in Christ. And Janet, I was, I'm weeping at that point, knowing what her background is. I thought, we don't do that in America. Yeah. We're a little too cultured for that. But I said to myself, here, uh, they're, they're so excited to get a Bible. It's not even something we can relate to. But let me tell you, what a joy to put, a, put the Word of God into the hands of believers, uh, even half a world away. And that's what your listeners can do today. Well, again, we are trying to get 1,200 Bibles into the hands of believers in Asia during this new campaign with Bible League International. And we are so excited. I know, Michael, last time we partnered, Janet Mefford today, listeners were overwhelmingly generous. And we are just calling upon you again today because what is more important than getting a Bible into the hands of a new Christian or a house church network that desperately needs to study the scriptures and learn about Jesus and be able to read in their own language what the Lord has to say to them. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I didn't get a chance to tell your listeners, thank you. What a difficult time to ask for financial support for a work half a world away. But you know, when it was all said and done with matches included, your listeners exceeded the goal, I think, by four, about four times uh, more, wow. more than the, the, the goal. And we're asking, you've done it before. 
Would you do it again, this time on behalf of Believers in Asia? (laughs) Yeah, I I know they will because I have the best listeners in the business and I I can brag on them. I can brag on them because they're awesome. I love them. I love spending time with the listeners every single day. Let me give out that number again. If you're just tuning in, we are really excited about this campaign with Bible League International to get 1,200 Bibles into the hands of believers who are desperately praying for them right now in Asia. 800-YES-WORD is the number to call. 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. There's also a banner to click at JanetMefford.com, and it's only $5 to send one Bible. So I know we can meet that goal again and exceed it. Just call now, 800-YES-WORD. Michael Woolworth from Bible League, always good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you, Janet. Thanks for all you do. God bless you. We'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Noah Webster once said, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. Isn't that the truth? And isn't that an apt description of where our country is right now? America needs one thing above all else, and that is the Lord. And as we prepare to celebrate our nation's Independence Day, how can the recovery of America's godly legacy help us to overcome what ails our nation? We're going to discuss it today with Dr. Marshall Foster, who is president and founder of the World History Institute, and we'll be discussing the new book, Land That I Love, Restoring Our Christian Heritage. Marshall, it's great to have you with us. How are you? Well, it's great to be with you, ma'am. Thank you. This book, I know, begins with a discussion on the transformation of American culture between 1900 and 2014, so 114 years. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how our nation has really changed, especially since the dawn of the 20th century. Well, radically. Um, If we can think of it, uh, in the history of mankind, there was never, except for the ancient Hebrews, an example of a lasting republic in the history of the world. The vast majority, 95% or more of the people who ever lived, lived in abject poverty and abject slavery. And along comes a nation called America. And for the next, even in the early days before we saw full freedom, it was, it was, a, it was a bastion of liberty. And then when the Constitution, the Declaration, and the beginning of the country happened, it was, it was a miracle in the history of the, of the entire world. And, and then it lasted, what, about 125 years until you see through that wonderful 19th century, this growing and expanding nation coming from nowhere to become now the, the, the richest, most powerful nation in the world. As it begins to happen, it happens because we followed biblical principles. We followed a Republican form of government, which was taken from Moses and from the Torah from uh, 3,400 years ago. And so we were following these examples. We were basically a self-governing people. We were sinners, and so we made mistakes like slavery had to be dealt with, and it cost 700,000 lives, and 
And so there were problems, but along the way, we kept our Christian roots. But it wasn't until really the mid-19th century to the beginning of the 20th century that you see the new modernist philosophies beginning, I believe, with uh, evolution and, and, uh, and from evolution and Karl Marx and the new Marxist philosophy, uh, secularism and uh, socialism that swept in kind of secretly into the country through various ways. It really became obvious when the Frankfurt Institute the uh, moved its headquarters over to Columbia University, and from there, John Dewey picked it up, and the progressive education system developed. And she brings this all out in her book of how how this philosophy of we can do it our way. Now we have all this freedom and liberty. Uh, now we're going to take we're going to destroy the history that was in the past, and we're going to say that there's a new way to to uh, bring liberty for all, and everybody's going to be happy, and there's going to be a chicken in every pot. And so they began to develop a, a lying narrative, but that narrative was 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 covered by an academic a shroud, and the result was that the vast majority of Americans were fooled, and many of the Christian people were 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 actually browbeaten into cultural obscurity. We developed into kind of a pietistic: we love our church and love our families, and and we'll just hold on till the end. Maybe God is coming soon to save us mentality. Rather than the early Americans who felt their their goal was to build God's kingdom, and when the Lord comes, He comes. But we've got to do all we can to replenish the earth. So there was a change of attitude in the church in the 20th century. It became much more oriented to itself and to private uh, private uh, life, and the society because the church abandoned the public square. The result is that politics, education, economics, the arts, uh, Hollywood was it was taken over by a radical elite, and that elite today has reached a worldwide global scale that now looks like almost an impenetrable web of of a secular worldview that doesn't really it's not reality, but it's a it, it is reality to the most people because that's all they see on their flat screen. Yeah, that's, you're totally right. Yep. That's the problem. Well, yeah. And you've touched on a lot of things here that I think are important to talk about. When you mentioned the Frankfurt School and the infiltration of cultural Marxism into the education system, that's an interview all all on its own. But when we talk about the church dropping the ball, I think that's a really important thing to talk about because it was at the beginning of the 20th century when you saw German higher criticism coming in, undermining the, the belief in the inerrancy of scripture. And so you had a number of especially mainline denominations fall prey to all of that. Now we see where they are today. But what is the difference here? When we look back at our heritage of the pilgrims coming over here specifically to find religious liberty because they were denied it over in England, what was the difference between those Christians and their mindset versus the mindset of so many Christians in our own day? Well, you know, it perhaps is best defined by by the pilgrim pastor, uh, We've been um, teaching the Pilgrim story for now about 50 years and, and spent a lot of time over in Holland where their pastor for, for, for 20 years that set the stage for them, uh, John Robertson, gave his final speech when the Pilgrims took off for America. And when he left them, he said, uh, specifically, he sent them out as warriors under the banner of Christ, and they will defeat their enemies. Uh, when their enemies bring tyranny, they will die. They will they will persevere. They will last. They will hold together. They will and they will win the victory. So the attitude of 
of the of the of the pilgrim or the Puritan that came to America in those early that early century, they were biblicists. They believed that the Word of God said that God's kingdom was real. It was internal, but it was real, and it was brought with the Word of God and with people to a place like America, and that our goal was then to replenish the earth and to make it good for all people and to do the best job we can. And so they did not have a, we're we're the underdogs, we can't do it mentality. They had the, this is our job and we're going to do it. It really comes out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says that we are God's ambassadors calling out to the world, be reconciled to God. So, you know, God is in sovereign, he's in control, we're his ambassadors. So it's onward Christian soldiers, and nobody sings that song anymore, right? Yeah. And that, you know, it's that it's that it's that mentality that we are marching through the earth, and it's and it's God's earth. Now, especially in the 20th century, there's a reversal of that because more people began to take on uh, the role that all is evil in the world, and that the devil owns the world, and that the world. See, there's a difference between the world system, meaning those who worship the devil or follow unbiblical principles, and the world terra firma. Terra firma belongs to God, and all of his creatures belong to God. And so the real world belongs to God, and it always has, and it always will. He never gave it up. And so once people get fooled into thinking that the world is lost, and there is no hope of changing government, then you get into J. Vernon McGee, who made the famous statement over and over for 30 years, you know, why should we polish brass in a sinking ship? Mm-hmm. You know, and so if, if, if the Christian begins to believe that, then why am I polishing brass? I might as well send my kids to public school. I might as well, you know, I don't care who gets elected to office. You know, it's all going down anyway. They're all bad. And so you hear that even today among many Christians, that, that there's not a right way and a wrong way toward government, toward education, uh, toward economics, uh, that socialism may be just as good as free enterprise because, you know, God doesn't really care about those things. All he cares about is saving souls. And that is, oh, that is, Francis Schaeffer railed against that in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I, was a, I was a student of Schaeffer, and, and that thing that really struck me with his escape from reason is that that's what's happened to Christians. We've escaped into a, into a two-world system in which uh, the upper story and the lower story. And somehow in the upper story, we can have our church picnic, and we can have our families, and we can have our church, and then down in the lower story, now the devil owns the earth, right? Mm. But up here, God owns us. And that we can't live in two worlds. There's only one world. And we've got to live through and in the world. God left us in the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. Yeah. And uh, we've got to make the most and make it as biblical and as Christian as we can. And the Americans did it like no one in the history of the world. And shame on us as the Christian community. If we turn our back on this heritage that took 5,000 years of human history to build. I agree. Hang on just a moment. Dr. Marshall Foster is with us. We're going to come back talking about land that I love. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Back in a moment. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, America is the land that I love. And I know that Christians love this country as well. But what has happened? Here we are in a terrible, terrible time in human history, in American history in particular. Very difficult days are upon us as we're up against our Independence Day celebration. And it feels very different, I think, for many of us. But really what we need to concentrate on is restoring our Christian heritage. We're talking with Dr. Marshall Foster, president and founder of the World History Institute. You made a really, really important point, Marshall, I thought before we went to the break. And that was the attitude difference between the pilgrims and those Christians today who would say, eh, culture wars, eh, politics, it doesn't really matter. It's all going to burn. Let's just wait for Jesus to come back. And we cede territory, don't we, when we do that? Because if the pilgrims had had that attitude, we wouldn't have the United States today. Oh, never. They wouldn't have come over. Half of them died the first winter. They went through terrifying conditions. And yet what they went through and then how they produced the beginnings of, they laid their lives down. They, their final statement by their governor, William Bradford, was that we've, we've, let, we've laid our lives down as stepping stones uh, that our children could walk on our back. You know, that's, that's what they saw themselves as stepping stones to the future mm-hmm. and that they were, they were going to be like that thousand points of light that George Bush talks about. But, but, it, it, but that's a takeoff on the original pilgrim saying that, that they have, they have impacted, they knew it by the time they died, that they had impacted the whole world because they had stepped out to take a biblical stand in all of life. They set up their government on the Bible. They set up their church on the Bible. They set up their economics on the Bible. They gave up socialism and turned to free enterprise in 1623. And all of those foundations then were kept by the founders, and they were put into the Constitution. And we are reaping the benefit of it. We have been the richest people, the safest people, the freest people the world has ever known. And now we've got to go back to those roots. 
Well, we do. The question is, how do we do this? Now we're in the midst of this secularized, postmodern society where we are just seeing a moral sewer like I've never seen in my whole life. I know we're all on the same page there. How do you restore? I mean, you can't do it, obviously, without the Lord, without revival, without returning to God's word, without God convicting people of sin, that they may turn to him in faith in Jesus Christ. Where do we even begin as Christians today to return to what we came from and to restore our Christian heritage? Because it does seem to a lot of Christians as if that's just an impossible task. You know, it appears that way, but that's why uh, this new book is so good. She points out in over 50 chapters and, and details her 40 years of teaching experience at Christian school that she headed up. Uh, Bobby does a fabulous job of laying out the, the principles and the foundations of America. How was America built? How did it fall apart? And then how can we save it? And much of the salvation of our country, and we know kind of it's falling apart, everybody knows that now, and, uh, and how it's built is something that we can, we can study in depth and should study in depth, and that's part of the book. But some people say, we don't have time for that. We're at the point where you better tell me what to do now because it looks like we're in real trouble. We may not have another decade to just think about it, right? Right. And so she, she goes into the fact that, yes, there is hope, and, and her hope goes back to, uh, to the great stories of history that prove, like the pilgrims, that it always takes a minority, just a single minority, sometimes one person, to make a difference, to transform an entire culture. And it's not going to be the majority. We don't need the majority. We just need the awakening of the Christian community. There are, there are what, at least 80 to 90 million evangelicals in America. We're the largest single minority with more wealth than any other minority in the, Amer- in the Americas. If just a percentage of that, 10% of them, became aware and alive and had their Christian children trained and began to train them in these biblical principles of self and civil government that are taught in this book. Uh, if, if this just began to happen, I mean, it began to happen today. We, we could, there's no more putting this off. Yeah. We need to repent and do what God has told us to do. That's from Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember from whence you've fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first, Jesus said. So, that's what we need to do. And as we do that, what I've shown in, in my books and, and my new, new book coming out called the, the Righteous Rebellion, which will come out later in the fall, this, this book is so beautifully detailed, and it's got over 300 pages and 50 chapters, goes in detail into how the whole thing unfolded in America, and then, and then gives specific answers to everything from down to the flag. So when you talk to the kids, how, how was the flag developed, uh, you know? What are the principles of socialism versus versus uh, a Christian America? What you know? Uh, how did it all fall apart? Then what can we do? And what what do you teach your children? Um, you know, what are the, what is the pastor's role? There's chapters on all of this, so that no matter where you are, you can you have your place. Each one of us has a place in God's kingdom. God's not there wringing his hands. You know, I love the verse that says. You know, uh, don't call conspiracy what the people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread what they dread. Fear God and dread Him. You know, God is the one who's in control here. And He loves His people. And He he has created us for such a time as this. Put us in this generation. Now is our time to shine as a city on a hill. Now is our time, one by one, instantly to wake up. It's not going to take decades to do this. 
it starts with an awakening of our hearts and our minds. And once that is that happens and we have the right material to go to, starting with the Bible, of course, uh, and going to biblical history, I mean, historical history that can be proven, you have those two elements together. You can then rebuild a civilization from the front if you have to. And that's about where we are. We're at that stage. Well, we are at that stage. And, and and it is encouraging, I think, your reminder that it doesn't take a majority to actually make a big difference. Sometimes it can take as little as few as one person to make a big difference. One question I would have along those lines, when you bring up the issue of the pulpit and the issue of the pastor, a lot of us are recalling the influence of the Black Robe Regiment back during the Revolutionary War era and how critical Christian pastors were during that time of fighting off tyranny and really you know, setting the course for the rest of American history. What is your prayer for pastors right now in their role or potential role in restoring the United States back to the Lord and, and restoring that Christian heritage that has been handed down to us? Well, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this has been my heart's desire for our entire ministry of 50 years, uh, is, to, is to help pastors to see and understand their their substantial role in uh, in training and education of their people, not only in the scripture, beginning with the scripture, but then the 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 outworking of that scripture in time and space. It is the responsibility of the shepherds of the flock to be able to detail the march of God's word and God's plan through the ages. Our people must see themselves as warriors on the stage of history who are marching for their King Jesus. And to see that, they need to know where they've come from. They need to know their heritage. They need to know their heroes. And so our pastors can provide that in their sermons. They can provide that with educational materials, by starting Christian schools, promoting home education, by, by how they preach from the pulpit a, a full context of an issue, not just caught up, caught up in... in either just sticking to verse-by-verse analysis of Scripture, which is wonderful, but, but, but ignoring maybe current events, or just dealing with current events and ignoring the Scripture, rather than either or, being able to biblically integrate what does God say in His Word and what does God want us to do today. That, that needs to be done, and, and it's not all, all up to the pastor, no. I think it goes down to the fathers in the home even yeah. more than the pastor. Yep. But... But it, it is, because if the fathers and all aren't willing to do it, then the pastors are stuck with having to you know, take a bunch of uh, sheep that don't want to go off the, you know, don't want to do the right thing. Hmm. So, so we've got to have the fathers in the home who are committed to Christ and who are willing to bring their whole families and, uh, and, and, and love God and want to know the answers. Let's be inquisitive, Church. Wake up. We, are, we wake up to the fact that we will either win this country for Christ or we will be talking about it in a prison camp, oh. not too far distant future. And wow. so, so what? What are the alternatives? What are we to do? And in a short interview like this, we can go into all the details. But there is great hope. Patrick of Ireland did it in thirty-five years as one person, and he eliminated thirty-five hundred years of slavery, sex trafficking, and ended paganism and the Druid worship forever. Amazing. One man. Amazing. One man. Yeah. So. If one man can do that, we can save a Christian nation 
that has gone astray. Very good. Well, that's very well said. And Bobby Ames' book is called Land That I Love, Restoring Our Christian Heritage. We've been talking with Dr. Marshall Foster, president and founder of the World History Institute. Marshall, thank you so much for being with us. It was great to talk to you. This hour of Janet Mefford today was brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, 800-YES-WORD. And thank you so, so very much. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Mefford Today.